Why is it that every time I bring up my favorite movie or song, y'all call my shit corny? You act like I don't have no taste and no flavor. I'm a Luddite or some bullshit like that. What kind of particular shit is that? It's the shit I like. That's what I like. That's my type of shit. You know? Don't you know y'all just say something nice? Showtime. Welcome to the Say Something Nice podcast. Film, TV, and music news and discussions, plus reviews of the films, TV shows, and music we've enjoyed or otherwise, in addition to our Say Something Nice challenge. Be sure to check us out at SSMPodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Acast, Google Play, and TuneIn. Be sure to like and share the show on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we are under the handle SSM Podcast. And be sure to comment and rate us five stars on iTunes and Stitcher. Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name is Brandon, and this is the Say Something Nice podcast. And I'm here today with our special guest. This is Stephanie from Mocha Minutes podcast. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm good. How are you? I am great. And we are here... um, on Tuesday, September the 18th, 2018, for a special podcast where we will be reviewing Spike Lee's latest um, joint, as he likes to call them, Black Klansman. I'll try not to call it Black Klansman because they put the extra K in there that tripped me, tripped me up. Um, but <laughs> um, by the time you will hear this, you will already have heard the latest, uh, the previous episode that we did, um, that we actually recorded on Sunday where I review Black Klansmen for about 15 minutes or so. And I'll be honest, I didn't feel like that was enough. <laughs> I literally texted Stephanie at work like, you want a podcast? Have you seen Black Klansmen? Let's talk about it. <laughs> Cause, I was like, I did. <laughs> what, kind of bir- what kind of birthday present is that to myself? To go see Black Klansmen on my birthday? <laughs> well, I mean... it. It could be one of, I mean, it is, um, first of all, I mean, it could be a good thing and it could be like a thing of like, I mean, it's it's a good thing, I think, in general, but like it could be also be like, I guess, like a, a hard thing to sit through, I guess, as a movie. But I will say this, mm-hmm. um, start off with my, for kind of my like initial review before we get into like the spoilers, like my non-spoiler review of Black Classroom. First of all, it's Spike Lee's best movie in the year, certainly since Inside Man, it might be in his mm-hmm. top five. I have to watch it again to determine to be sure. Uh, I mean, okay. Spike Lee, of course, his top five is all already in the National Film Art Film Registry. You know, Do the Right Thing and Mo Better Blues and mm-hmm. um, Malcolm X and School Days and She's Gotta Have It and, you know, Jungle Fever. You know, so many great movies he's done. And there's so many not so great. So, like, you know, Miracle at St. Anna and... Chirac, which I haven't seen. Everybody told me not, not to ever see it. Um, yeah, I haven't seen that either. <laughs> and it's sitting there right there on Amazon, like for free to watch. And like I'm like, I just keep rolling past it. You're like, like mm. <laughs> you're like, still though, still, still though. No, it's a still a no for me, dog. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So, and I, I didn't. Even though I heard the reviews were good, I on purpose. When I want to, when I know I want to see a, a movie. I like I tend to avoid the reviews until I get mm, out okay. the movie. I'll I'll re I'll like pour through the Rotten Tomatoes and the YouTube stuff after I've seen the movie. And because of my move and everything and trying to get this new apartment situated, like 
I was behind on stuff, so I didn't really look at the reviews. I didn't even check the score for this one. The Rotten Tomatoes score for this one. I just went, saw it, mm-hmm. and then came out. Oh, 97%. Okay. That makes sense. Because, uh, yeah. <laughs> for those who don't know, this movie is a, um, a, and we'll get into this, it's a, it's loosely based on the true story of Ron Stallworth, who was the first black police officer in the Colorado Springs Police Department, who in the 1970s, cold called the KKK and got set up with a meeting to actually join them and sent a white man in his place and basically catfish the Ku Klux Klan for the better part of a year with the help of a white man who would go stand in for him when he was supposed to go to the meetings. And this movie basically, this movie is, even though it's loosely based on it, it's not really about the 1970s. It's about 2018, 2017. It's mm-hmm. just it's using the 1970s as a cover, as a mask to talk about what's going on today. Because one key thing they did is that Ron Starworth's story took place in 1979, 1980, when he was cold called in the KKK and got initiated and got the membership and everything. They slightly moved the action back to 1972, 70. Well, it's nebulous because they talk about Cleopatra Jones in the movie, and that movie didn't come out until 73. So I was like, is mm. it 72 or is it 73? Which one is that? Um, but mm. they moved it to 72, 73 on purpose because of Richard Nixon. He was president at the time and had just been reelected. Huh. And obviously the allusions of Nixon to Trump are um, on purpose. You know, the whole thing talking about, oh, America would never let anybody like David Duke be president. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and there's a lot it of It don't that. seem so far-fetched now. No, it's reality. It's such, it's chilling. It's mm-hmm. horrible reality. You know, the discussions of white power versus black power, you know, the discussions of the Klan, showing the Klan. Spike Lee always had a tendency to make racist white people in his movies look like cartoon characters. Like, they were they were racist when they woke up, racist when they went to bed. Just racist, racist. That was like the only thought in their head. It was just like, the, you know, the, the call people niggas, and spew other hatred, and that was basically it. There was very little nuance in, like, his racist characters. Like, the only exception, I think, is, like, um, Sal in Do the Right Thing. Because even his son, like, his son is, like, basically just, I'm racist, racist, racist. Michael Rappaport in Black, I'm bamboozled, I'm racist, racist, racist. Like, it's sort of kind of, you know, didactic. Uh, Michael Rappaport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This movie has his most... Like three dimensional, and also for that reason, his most frightening white racist like antagonists, like they aren't cartoon characters. He, they, they are directed, enacted, and written like regular people who are still racist, still dangerous. But it's that regularity, like they could be the person at your job, the person at your bank, the person you know mm-hmm. behind the line at you at the grocery store. Like, like normal racist. Yes, like normal <laughs> racist. Which makes it all the more scary. But like this movie is really well crafted. Spike Lee, there's a couple of Spike Lee-isms, you know, clips from random movies and TV shows figure into like the um the edit a lot. Um, you know, um Laura Harrier as Patrice is basically like she's essentially like the Spike Lee. She's uh what's Jada Pinkett's character in Bamboo? She's basically that character just younger, which isn't a bad thing. Mm. It's not a bad thing, but she's like a sort of kind of the, the stock Spike Lee character in a movie that's not really filled with those characters. Um, and of course, you know, we do get the dolly shot at the end. But 
for beyond that, there's a lot of new tricks that he employs, a lot of, you know, like things that, you know, like intercutting and things and the way that he rises the dramatic tension. And then, of course, there's this really awesome Terrence Blanchard score. I didn't even need to read the credits. As soon as I heard, so I hear the score music, I was like, that's Terrence Blanchard. <laughs> Ain't nobody else going to write a score like this. But yeah, I really... Brandon in that ear. Yes. I really enjoyed it. I would give it an A. The only reason I probably wouldn't give it an A plus is um, I, the acting, uh, I generally enjoyed most of it. Uh, John David mm-hmm. Washington is awesome. He sounds just like his dad, even though he don't look his dad. His dad, of course, is Denzel. Um, Adam Driver was, I don't want to say he was the weak link for me, but it's just that he, I feel like he didn't change up much, much of his acting from like, I feel like, is Kylo Ren about to infiltrate the KKK? Yeah, that. That's literally what I saw. <laughs> it like, it, it's kind of like the timbre of his voice didn't change. I was just like, when are you going to do that thing right. where you could like reach out and choke somebody? Right. But still, I like Ed. I liked him. I liked his character. Yeah, but yeah. So that so that's my score. Um, what would what would your um uh, non spoiler review and rating be? If it was a non spoiler, it definitely would be an A. And I agree with you. It this is one of Spike's better joints. Not that I'm like a um, expert on his joints, but this is one of the better ones. But I think it was interesting that he had released it in August because if you think about it, even though it's like late summer, it's still summer. So you're still thinking summer blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And when it was released, it was like I feel like uh, if he had released it in maybe like the fall, I wonder if. Um, more people would have lined up to see it because I feel like some people kind of just fell through the cracks when it came to Black Klansmen because they're like, well, it's August and I'm thinking big budget movies. Right. And plus, like, it's like sort of kind of right in between like those blockbusters and school starting back. But the reason why it was released, of course, mm-hmm. in August, it was released on August 10th, which is the one year anniversary of the Charlottesville Unite the Right um, uh, racist far-right um, rally. And they actually had, like, a one-year anniversary rally, which, you know, like, anti-fascists basically more or less shut down, thankfully. But mm-hmm. it was released on purpose on that day. Because yeah. it was done. They showed it at Cannes back in May. So, I mean, like, they could release it at any point during the summer. But they chose, like, that right. week in August to put it out. Um, but, it, I mean, it's going to... I'm sure that, you know, once the... Because it's good enough to where it's going to get some award attention. Once the nomination stuff roll in, they'll put mm-hmm. it back out in the theater probably like in January and pe- more people will probably see it then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So let's go ahead and... Because it's kind of hard to talk about this without spoiling it, even though it is like based on a true story. But so mm-hmm. if you guys have not seen Black Klansman, don't be like me. Don't wait to go see it. Go see it now before the end get out the theater and put <laughs> Venom or some nonsense in this in this auditorium instead. Oh, <laughs> That's gonna make me so mad because every time I see that trailer, I'm like, oh it's like oh, this is gonna suck. Uh, I, I don't I don't know about that one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, go see it and then come back and listen to the rest of this. But for everybody else, we're going to go ahead and um, do the spoiler review of Black Klansman. All right. And so, so this movie starts fucking Spike Lee. I actually say out loud, fucking Spike Lee. I love it. it the movie opens up with 
the famous shot from Gone with the Fucking Wind. Which, if you all in the audience don't know, is just adjusted for inflation, the highest grossing motion picture of all time, still. Really? Yes, above Avatar, above Star Wars, above all that shit. No movie that's ever been released has made as much actual, like, capital as Gone with the Wind. Wow. Which says a lot about the world and about America in particular. <laughs> so... And we open on, you know, the scene where Miss Scarlet's going looking through the um the um Confederate army camp for her husband at the time. I forget which one. She had like 900 of them. Um, that movie's a mess. Have you ever seen all four hours of Gone with the Wind? I have not. Yeah, I've I've seen it all the way through, I think, twice. And then sometimes I'll put on like the second half and just watch the white people try to pick their own cotton and their own crops and just laugh. Um, but yeah, that movie is that movie is a lot. It's basically a four. It's basically a four-hour white Tyler Perry movie. Like it's a soap opera essentially about you know a woman who keeps marrying men for money and power because the man that she really wants she can't have, which is her best her which is her best friend's husband. What? Wait, what? Yeah, that's the part of Gone with the Wind. Uh, she wants um, <gasps> um, um, Olivia de Havilland's husband. Can't have him, so she marries everybody else, including Rhett Butler, who she doesn't love, just so that she can get money taken care of. And then the backdrop of all this happening is, first, the secession from the Union of the Southern States, the actual Civil War, and then Reconstruction period. So, like, wow. you know, it starts out, you know, like, the, the um, terror of their plantation, you know, is thriving and everything. And, you know, slaves are doing all the work and everything. And Mammy's tending to her arm um, to everybody's knees. And little black children are fanning the, um, the mistresses of the, um, of the plantation as they um, have their afternoon nap with big, gigantic palm leaves. And then the war starts and breaks out. All the men run off to war and coming back, you know, um, crazy and diseased and everything. Had him Daniel collecting shirts and um, pants and talk about, I'm about to put these bitches in the bottom pot. We ain't had no dysentery around here. (laughs) 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 And meanwhile, Scarlett is marrying man after man because she can't have Ashley, uh, her friend. um, I forgot the name of the friend Olivia de Havilland plays. But she wants Ashley. She can't have Ashley. She keeps marrying this man. That man dies. She marry another one. That man dies. She marry another one. And Tara falls in disrepair after the war because, you know, oh, gosh, you know, the war took all the... It's like um, Brett Butler actually leads her, Scarlet, and Prissy, the character that Buffy McQueen plays, through the, um, the, the burning of Atlanta in 1864. Uh, huh. Which they do with a whole lot of, you know, 1930 special effects and, you know, um, superimpositions and... Close-up shots of Butterfly McQueen in the back screaming her head off. That poor woman. She hated that part. She hated that part, but she needed the money. And she complained every day on the set about playing this stereotypical, um, screaming, simple character. Mm. Um, But her rent was due. She eventually left movies and stayed in theater when she realized the parts weren't going to get any better. Um, wow. But yeah, and so the second half of Gone to Wind, that's only the, that's only the first two hours. This is four hours long. They give you an intermission, but it's four hours long. So the second, it's an intermission. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they go off and they put beside us. says intermission for fifteen minutes. You go supposed to go to the bathroom, what? get you some more popcorn and shit, and then you come back and sit down and watch the rest of the movie. <laughs> Are you fucking? What kind of movie is an intermission? 
Oh my God. Long movies used to have intermissions back in the day. Like West Side Story has an intermission, Sound of Music, all those old, big, gigantic musicals, stuff like that, they had intermissions. It wasn't that uncommon. Wow. Like, if, I'm trying to think. If Avatar had been released in 1965, somehow, it had an intermission. It would have been like maybe like a half hour longer and they would have cut for intermission. Because they can, they can, wow. they can get more money basically because they're giving you essentially a double show. But yeah, the second half of Gone with the Wind um, is about you know the white people in Reconstruction suffering as you know black people are now in government and stuff and everything. And actually, the book Gone with the Wind by Margaret Mitchell in the second half that's in the movie they had to change the movie a whole bunch because in the book Scarlet gets attacked and almost raped by a. Um, or, you know, a crazy evil black man. And then, like, Ashley and Rhett Butler and all of them have to go find a black man and kill him. And they start the Ku Klux Klan in that in the book. In the movie, the rapist is turned to a white man instead, and there's no mention of the Klan at all. Hmm. But that figures into... And, I, and Spike Lee, of course, picked Gone with the Wind on purpose because you see Scarlet walking through this field of all these, you know, dying Confederate soldiers, one of the most, you know, one of the most quote-unquote famous scenes in cinema history, and you see the tattered, just half-destroyed Confederate battle flag above the whole thing. Uh, in, the, in the original movie, like, you hear, like, a very, very sad, like, version of the Confederate battle song playing, like, they mm. see, like, in a minor key and everything. In... This, Terrence Blanchard rescored it to match, you know, the introduction of the movie instead. And they've redubbed all the dialogue. But what he's showing by using Gone with the Wind is, if, and knowing the history behind it, is that the bad, like the loss of the South to the North in the Civil War is the catalyst, mm-hmm. and the loss of slaves and slavery is the catalyst that continues to this day for the mistreatment, the torture the death and the destruction of black of free black people ever since then, 150 years ago. Mm. Because they cut familiar from there to um it's a scene with the fictitious uh, I don't know what you would call him, I guess a lecturer or whatever, played by Alec Baldwin. He's basically um talking about, he's giving this history of racial relations in the South between. 1865 mm-hmm. and 1972 when our movie starts about, you know, Brown versus Board and, you know, the Little Rock Nine and everything talking about I was how, trying to figure out who he was supposed to be. And I'm like, who is he supposed to be? Oh, he's a fake character. His character's name okay. is a Dr. Kennebrew Beauregard. Mm-hmm. He's basically just a propagandist who's basically setting up for the audience the history of racism in the South and about how white people have uh, felt like America's become a quote-unquote mongrel race because of the intermixing, the miscegenation, and the integration, you know. And Mm Alec Baldwin's playing this part. like You're seeing him and his outtakes of him recording this footage over the years because it keeps going from black and white and, you know, like 4-3 to wider screen and color because it's clear that these are like, he's, whatever figure he is, he's popular and he's continuing throughout 
the civil rights movement. He calls Martin Luther King, Martin Luther Coon, as is unfortunately mm. common among racists and everything. He keeps asking the secretary for like corrections to the narration he's supposed to be reading and everything like that. And Alec Baldwin is chosen on purpose. As we all know, mm. Alec Baldwin plays Donald Trump on SNL. Mm-hmm. So even though he's not playing Donald Trump in this introduction, his casting is not without purpose in, the, in that part. Mm. But basically, it sets all of that up, and then we go to uh, call up to the opening title, which you know I think it says like this is this is based on some for real for real shit. <laughs> <laughs> and you know the, the opening title, and we see uh, Ron Starworth played by John David Washington um, in a very obvious um, Afro wig. I don't know if we're supposed to notice how obvious it is, but. Like he looked like he looked like Toad from Mario Kart. Oh God! See, you know what? That's the le- I don't need any more imagery. Oh about Toad yeah, today. yeah. So yeah, uh, oh, if y'all if, anymore. I won't I won't say anything about it. But if y'all read the news, yeah, I saw that shit too. Y'all yeah, ruined my fucking childhood. Why? Why start? Like- start. You could you could have described it any other way. You had to say Toad. But yeah. <laughs> Right. Anything else? I'm sitting here like, why is this trending? Are they coming out with a new Mario Kart game? Oh, oh God. Now I can't look at it. And Toad is my favorite character to play with. So I'm like, great. Now I don't want to. I'm supposed to throw vegetables now. I'm going to be throwing like red turtle shells. Nope, not today, Satan. Won't Mm-mm. do it. But yeah, so. Um, the um, Colorado Police Department is recruiting uh, minorities to join the police force. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so Ron Starworth wants to be a cop, so he goes in. And um, he meets with the police chief, uh, played by um, Chief Bridges, played by Robert John Burke. And he meets with Mr. Turrentine, I guess, who's like maybe like a local politician or maybe like the local NAACP representative, played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., and they're basically, you know, asking him, are you ready? Do you realize you'll be like the Jackie Robinson of the Colorado Springs Police Department? And Jackie Robinson went through a whole lot of shit, you know? And so, yeah. like, and the, what, the, um, the chief is like, will you be prepared if your fellow officers say disparaging things about you? And Isaiah just like, are you going to be mad they call you a nigga? Yeah, I know, that's right. <laughs> Ross Starford was like, is that going to... Yeah, is that gonna happen? And every as I would like to shit, like he do on the wire. <laughs> it was like, man, just make it plain for him. Don't yeah. dance around this. And so he just he's like assures them that he will only attack anybody if he's provoked. He doesn't want to be a provoc- provocateur. He wants to be a police officer. That's been his dream since he was a child. Mm-hmm. So he joins up, mm-hmm. becomes the first black police officer, and is immediately sent. To the record room. <laughs> Where y'all just wanted having a Negro on the roll. That's all you wanted. Yeah, so you can point at him and say, look, we got one. See? Give us some um a tax See? break. We mm-hmm. are complying with affirmative action. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's just in there, you know, he has to go and get the case files for um whenever they come in to get like um case files on a, I guess a a perp or whatever. And all the other white officers, they all call the black, um, um, you know, like, suspects they're looking for toads. Speaking of toad. 
And oh, at, by um, after a couple of times of this, Ron Stallworth is worn down. He's like, look, I don't have any toads back here. I have human beings. Can you tell me the guy's name? And I can look for it. And when the dude tells him the name, he he takes like 900 minutes to go and get that file and walk mm-hmm. back one centimeter at a time. <laughs> and, that back. and that white man... I do not blame him. I'm like, I know that's right. Yeah. No, I'm not rushing to get you this. That white man called him Officer Toad. Um, mm. I think this is Landers is what his name, Officer Landers. And I think so. Yeah, because he figures in like later, like they like he apparently was in a like involved in a situation where he shot a black kid dead and didn't have didn't mm-hmm. suffer for it because you know the whole thing. Um he said that the kid um had a gun, whatever, and there he he asked his fellow police officers, Do you believe him? He's like, Well, it's the thing, you know, he's our brother, we're family. You know, it's mm-hmm. that whole it's that whole blue line thing, and just mm-hmm. yeah. And so, Starworth tries to convince the chief that he would be better suited to being, you know, undercover undercover cop, you know, or a detective. He hates the records mm-hmm. room, and the police chief is like, "No, you know, like you're a rookie. You will do rookie stuff until we determine otherwise." And for whatever reason, they immediately determined otherwise a couple of days later because um, Kwame Toure, formerly known as Stuckley Carmichael, is coming to Colorado Springs to give a speech at a nightclub. And they want Ron Stallworth to go undercover with a wire because they feel like the Black Panther Party, of which Kwame Toure was formerly associated with, by this time he wasn't anymore, was the Mm. biggest threat to um, the United States citizenship. Which... That was the biggest threat. <laughs> Listen. Uh, we could talk about Pro and everything, but we'd be here all damn day. Like, listen. White people, y'all cho- y'all flipped the road, the coin and chose the wrong side. Let me just put it that way. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> and so, Ron Stone agrees to do this. And, you know, he... He goes with a wire on to the thing, and there he meets um, Patrice. Um, mm-hmm. Patrice Dumas, who's played by Laura Harrier, who played Liz Allen in Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, who looks a lot different and a lot older with um, her 1970s glasses that my, my mama used to have and her afro. <laughs> <laughs> mama had the same glasses when she was that age. <laughs> really? Yes, she did. Oh, uh... I was like, is that mama? <laughs> Yeah. Mama, you ain't tell me they put you in a movie. <laughs> but you yeah. didn't tell me you knew Spike Lee. Yeah. <laughs> R- Randall, my mama didn't know Spike Lee, but she knew Lawrence Fishburne. Did she? She did. Mm. Man. Uh, but yeah, so um Ron Starworth was immediately taken by Patrice, and he sort of kind of flirts his way through introducing himself to her, her and learns that she is the student body president, uh, the black student body president, the black student union president, my bad, at Colorado College, which I, I guess is fictitious. Um, or is it for real? Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, it's real. <laughs> hmm. um, just the alliteration made it sound. Yeah, but... Uh, like it wasn't. Yeah. And she's the one who arranged uh, for Kwame Ture to come and speak. And so 
he's unfamiliar because he knows he knows him, of course, still as Stokely Carmichael, even though he had changed his name a couple of years earlier before coming back to America. Mm-hmm. So he goes in and hears a speech. And any other movie, you would have got maybe like 30 seconds of the speech or like a minute. But Spike Lee gives you like an entire speech, which I'm not sure is verbatim or not, from um, Kwame Toure, who is played by Corey Hawkins, who we know from... Um, playing Dr. Dre in Straight Outta Compton and from being um, Black Bower on 24 for that one mm. season before they canceled it. And he was damn good. Mm-hmm. He was, he commanded the screen in his brief amount of time he had. And it was absolutely amazing. The speech that he gave, he could have given it in 2018 and it had the same impact and effect, which is, of course, the point. You know, basically yep. it's about, you know, how American culture makes Black people hate themselves in ways that are both overt and covert. He talks mm-hmm. about having like Tarzan as a kid and going to see Tarzan movies at the matinee on Saturday and cheering for Tarzan and beating all the Black natives, you know, or get that savage and realizing he was talking about um, attacking himself. And as he's giving the speech, mm-hmm. you know, um, Spike Lee is intercutting, you know, faces of all the black people with the af- with their afros over black backgrounds, give you that crushed velvet. Like, you know, if, if y'all have, you know, your moms, your grandmother, you like old people around, you know, you've seen them photographs before. If you have, mm-hmm. they, your parents probably owned an album with them kind of photographs on it <laughs> from that period. Mm-hmm. And the crossfade, black person after black person and Ron Stower, basically this moment changes him forever because he comes to realize, you know, things about himself that he hadn't realized before about his blackness, his place in the world and everything. He's there wearing a wire of all things for white people to learn and to determine how much of a threat he, um, Kwame Ture is. Meanwhile, he's actually being transfixed by what is going on. And he goes up to him later on and ask, you know, because he because he had mentioned, you know, we need to be prepared. We need to have, you know, um, guns and everything. I would rather kill a corrupt police officer in America than kill somebody over in Vietnam. And mm-hmm. he asked Kwame Ture, do you really um, think that, you know, there's going to be a race war? And he basically says, prepare yourself, brother. You know, um, the revolution is gonna mm-hmm. is coming one day. You know, um, and they get all that on tape. And by the police chief, he's like, you know, well, Chief, a lot of that is rhetoric. Really, what that was all about was people making people feel better and protecting themselves, you know. But, you know, they're not convinced at all. There's some disparaging remarks made about um, Muhammad Ali being a draft dodger, mm. which is on purpose for Spike Lee to put in there because um, to remind folks, you know, nowadays, 2018, Adam Muhammad Ali Lee is um, both A, not with us anymore, and B, had Parkinson's and had not spoken, basically, for in public for decades, he had become this lovable, mm-hmm. sort of kind of adorable figure to white folks, sort of like kind of like Uncle Ben with his rice. They, um, <laughs> they, they had conveniently, that's how they treated him, like Uncle Ben. Like they had conveniently forgotten that, you know, he used to, when he could talk and move and he was like the champion and everything, he used to talk all the shit in the world, tell white people about themselves every time they put a microphone in front of his face. And they hated his guts. Mm-hmm. All they the really way. Did. You know, once he couldn't talk anymore, it's like, oh, he's so adorable. Like a puppy. We love Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Like, y'all are crap. Yeah, y'all didn't even want to call Muhammad Ali. I kept calling him Cassius Clay. Like, 
<laughs> Man, Whew. that's gonna be Kaepernick in thirty years. Yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, it's like we love. I'm like, no, no, no. no. We we still have the retweets. Uh, <laughs> we remember. Mm-hmm. Now we have Twitter. Could you imagine if everything that happened with Muhammad Ali happened in this age of Twitter? Mm. You'd be like, uh-uh. <laughs> Not on my watch. Let I me, remember. Let me run a search right quick. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let me Got just, it. Let me search your Twitter. <laughs> but yeah, so after that, for... um. With the intelligence, unfortunately, though, that Ron Tower got with the wire on, the police, that police, that same police officer, um, Landers, pulls over the car that Patrice has to take Carmen Torre back to his hotel and everything. And they're all taken out, you know, and patted down. And he sexually harasses Patrice, basically keeps touching her, you know, inappropriately and like on her behind and everything like that. And basically tells her that you need to get this this um this nigger out of town before um by by sunrise, you know. And when Ron Starworth hears about this, you know, obviously it's disturbing to him because it's like he is a indirect participant in the harassment of this woman he just met. Yep. I really like that Spike um, put that into the movie because I think that's another um, trope that sometimes gets no, uh, ignored with racists, like the actual, the, the sexual assault part of it too. Right. Because it's this weird because thing. I- like, and I'll give an example. Have you ever seen like the unedited versions of old like cartoons? Like the racist ones, like no. where... Like, so, there is a very racist um, cartoon by Walter Lance who created Woody Woodpecker. The cartoon is called mm. Scrubby Mama with a Boogie Beat. came out in 1941. It's about um, this town called Lazy Town where it's full of black people who are all drawn like baboons. And they're all lazy. <sighs> they, they, they can't move. They can't do anything fast at all. Then... But mind you, they're all drawn like baboons. They have dog noses and gigantic red lips. Then are this, you kidding? No, no, it's dead serious. You can actually look watch this on YouTube because it's in the public domain now. It's they the copyright um lapsed on it. But then all of a sudden, this beautifully drawn light-skinned woman from Harlem, like she's drawn like 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 a sexy cartoon character, like human being. Like with actual human wow. being features, comes and Immediately, all peps and everybody step. She sings this song about, you know, and it gets everybody up and moving. And it's this weird thing to where she and a couple of other, like, quote unquote, you know, like, good looking, light skinned women are objectified sexually the way that they, a white woman would be in another cartoon. But the mammies and the aunties and everything like that, and the men are all drawn like baboons. And it's this is very weird thing with racists and racism in general, where there's this desire for at least a certain type of a black woman sexually that comes across mm-hmm. in the rhetoric and in the um, like the product they produce. Because there's a joke that later on that gets made by um, Adam Driver when he's in uh, at going on the covers, Ross Howard, about um, having um, black women suck his dick. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. It's it's fine so long as it's being subservient to the white man to gratify his sexual needs. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, you know, goes back to the whole thing about um, plantation um, sexual assaults and things like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so after that rally, they reassigned Ron Sowerf out of doing this undercover work um, going after Black um, leaders, which he actually in real life did for a while because Boots Riley, when he was talking about Black Klansmen, he complained that, you know, Ron Sowerf went undercover and tried to infiltrate a group that his parents were a part of. You know, why he was, and none of that is in the movie because, of course, the movie is basically like a work of fiction anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and Spike declined to really to comment on that because he didn't want the actual message of the movie that he made to be lost and sort of have a back and forth. Like 10 years ago, he probably would have engaged in it, but like Spike Lee is like, he's old and he's older now and wiser. So I was surprised when he didn't because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's kind of like, like, did, is this the same Spike Lee? Because Vintage Spike would have like said, listen, bro, you can meet me at this corner at this time. You got mm-hmm. something to say. You dig show enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. he's just mm-hmm. like, out. Spike Lee growing up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so in the intelligence department, um, Ron Stallworth, he's looking through the paper one day, because this is the part where Flip Zimmerman, who is Adam Driver's character, that's where they meet. And they're sort of kind of out in the same office. Mm-hmm. Listen to the paper one day, and in the goddamn newspaper, plain as day, is an ad for inquiries to join the Ku Klux Klan. I'm sitting here like, wait, y'all just advertise this in the paper? As if it's like the Eagles Club or like the Water Buffaloes. This is right there. So he, he calls the I damn was like, whoa. <laughs> he calls the number, leaves the most racist message you could possibly leave. He's like, I really hate those nigger rats. I hate Jews and, <laughs> and fags. And I remember I really hate those nigger rats. You know, just, just ruining white America. Because the funny thing about Ron Starworth, he has a like a, just a natural white sounding voice on the phone. He doesn't he really have to even affect it very much to sound like a white person over the phone. And so he leaves the message and immediately gets a call back. He's invited to meet a guy named Walter at a bar in a couple of days. But then they ask him, wait a minute, did you use your real name? He was like, motherfucker. Uh. <laughs> And of course, he can't go. So he eventually they uh, convince um, Flip Zimmerman to assume the um, persona of uh, Ron Stallworth to go and meet Walter at this place. And so after a couple of other phone calls, where you know he they sort of kind of set up that you know he wants to join the clan because his sister was attacked and nearly raped by. A um a big scary black man. This is a story he comes up with. And it's funny because like he tries to train Flip to sound like him, because they don't sound like it all. And the way that they do this is by having him recite with him the lyrics to say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud by James Brown. Because it's funny, <laughs> when they said Godfather, I thought, oh, they're going to run lines from the Godfather of the movie? No, he meant the Godfather of Soul. <laughs> Mr. Dynamite. <laughs> the hardest working man in show business. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. They said I'm 
back of our pride. It's so fucking funny because that's how he trains this white man to sound like his white voice to go to this meeting where he'll be indoctrinated into the Klan. And so they go, so Flip goes to the meeting um, where, where actually he meets not Walter, he, but he said he meets a guy named Felix. Felix Kendrickson, played by Jasper Pakonin or Baconin. He's got a lot of thingies in his name. I don't, it's, it's, it's very foreign. Um, <laughs> uh, who we learn very, like Walter is sort of kind of like, like this sort of kind of like, sort of kind of almost mellow sort of corporate type of a KKK member. Like it's weird. He could be selling you insurance. Probably he probably is an insurance salesman in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, Felix, on the other hand, is sort of kind of more what you would think of when you think of somebody who's in the clan. He's like this really crazy, gun-toting, wild card, trigger-happy racist. Mm-hmm. And it's his job to take um, f- um, Flip as Ron to this actual secret hiding meeting spot. And so, Uh-oh. yeah, um, <laughs> Ron and the other police officer in their little unit, they tell him, but they tell him too close. And it, I, if I recall properly, the, um, Felix hands um, Flip a gun and Felix himself starts shooting out like, the bat, like, like at the car behind him and forces him off the road, if I recall properly. But I at least know that he pulled, they pulled out the gun and, like, just it was just randomly under the damn seat. And so Ron has to learn not to, not to use two car limps to trail people. You can't just ride somebody's behind for like seven miles without them realizing that they're being followed. And so they go to the, like, this, like, you know, sort of kind of secret meeting spot. Where he meet where he um uh, he actually does meet Walter, uh, and he's already met Felix, and he meets um Ivanhoe, played by Paul Walter Hauser, who's sort of kind of like the the goofy dumb like sort of kind of um you know like uh, yeah yeah goofy spaced out one. I'm like, how did he get in? <laughs> how, did, how did he remember all like the little like man- mantras and shit? But hey. Um, <laughs> and because and because Ivan Hill sort of kind of he's like a like a even more of a wild card. He actually randomly mentions that they're planning this, like planning an attack. And so, of course, you know this is what they end up starting to investigate. Um, Star Wars and Zerman, like, and so Ron Star was on the phone with the clan, basically doing the intel over the telephone and everything. And, you know, getting the whole application process set up. And Flip actually goes to the meetings pretending to be Ron Starworth. And over the course of this, you know, they depict these meetings. It's as if, like, and this is done on purpose. And I'm, it's probably how this is. It, these meetings are casual as fuck. They might as well be Cub Very. Scout meetings. Like, so, but also, it seems like they're unorganized, too. Right. It's very casual, just very just like, you know, we're here to hang out and talk about how much we hate anybody who's not 
white, straight, Protestant, Anglo-Saxon, um, hot dog uh, eating, uh, <laughs> good American, like uh, Ron Sidewalk tells um, Flip Zimmerman. Because Flip Zimmerman, uh, also, he is Jewish. And he, just, but he's not a practicing Jewish person. He just, he's ethnically Jewish and like culturally Jewish. Like he wears a star of David, but he doesn't like, mm-hmm. you know, that's basically the extent of um, his um, um, dance with Judaism. And over the course of this movie, he comes to realize, you know, and Ron Silver tells him, you know, you've been passing as a wasp white man, even though you're not one of them. They don't, and they're not, and they don't treat, they don't think of you as one of them. You know, you've gotten this far that way. You've never thought about, you know, the clan because you feel like it doesn't affect you, but it does. Because, like, Felix immediately takes one look at uh, Flip and is like, okay, this guy's clearly Jewish. You know, I'm going to figure out how to, like, determine it. And so during one of these meetings, he takes him into, like, his under, his, like, his secret lair where he has a goddamn um, truth, um, what, do you, what do you call it? Um... What's the actual name of the machine? I'm blanking. I'm blanking at right now. Um, the machine. Like, the, the um, lie detector. Like, yeah, like, oh, I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, he wants to question Flip as to whether or not he is actually a Jew because you know the clan they're not too they're keen they're about as keen on Jews as they are on black people. He also wants to see his dick. Oh, they don't like anybody that's not white Protestant. Right. He's like, I hear Jews do something funny with their dicks. And Felix is trying to, like, you know, get out of it by calling him gay and everything, but, like, it's not working. And so Ron comes up and he throws a rock through the window as a distraction. And so everybody comes out, sees this black man running away. They all start trying to take aim at him. And it's funny because um, um, Flip grabs Felix's gun and try and shoots, but he's missing on purpose because he's like, you know, he's a good shot. So that Ron can actually get away. And it should be mentioned that in this scene, these scenes, we're introduced to Connie Kendrickson, who is Felix's wife, played by um, Ashley Atkinson. Listen. Spike and the writers, because there's four writers, two white, two black. Mm. The idea of having this character be essential to the plot she is was an excellent idea because way too often when we talk about racism and racism, we only talk about white men. We don't ever talk about white women mm-hmm. and the complicit role that we they play. white women out. This white woman mm-hmm. was a goddamn mess. She's like... Absolutely. Betty Crocker fucking... Um, food network, home economics as I made cookies for the clan meeting. And she desperately wants to be a part of the clan and to help plan and plot strategy. And Felix is like, no, because, you know, they don't like women too much tough either. And she's like, one of these days you're going to need me. And to show how necessary she is to him and to the clan, she tells them about, you know, who Patrice is, that she was, like, you know, the leader of the Black Student Union at Colorado College. And she's the one who brought Kwame Ture to Colorado. And so they start targeting the Black Student Union and Patrice in particular, thanks to Connie, as she's trying to get everybody to have her nasty-ass cookies, wherever the fuck she was that she was baking. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, I, I wouldn't eat a daggone thing that she makes because, ugh. Right. Just, um, hmm. and there's so ugh. much more with Connie coming up it, later. I mean, this whole <laughs> character, it's like, oh, she makes me so angry, but it's like, the bad part about it is that's why I love the characters in this movie because you know a Connie. Yes. You know oh, somebody yes. just like that. They're like, oh. So, well, I'm, I, I'll call her, uh, well, my Connie used to work at my old job and she was as nice as shit to me. She was. Mm. And I don't know, it's funny. I think a lot of white people think that I'm like a nice, safe Negro because, you know, I know how to speak the king's <laughs> English around them and everything like that, you know, and you know, and talk about technical oh, things boy. and that kind of stuff. But so they they feel comfortable, you know. Next thing they know, they're saying, "Wow!" Like so, I add Connie on Facebook, and every time something comes up about Black Lives Matter, um, this is before Colin Kaepernick, um, anything civil rights, Black Lives Matter, you know, all that kind of stuff. She comes on my page. And says some wild shit. Whoa. To the point where I'm cussing her out. The white people on my Facebook page are cussing her out. And they're like, mm. like, like, Harpo, who this woman? You know? And so eventually I had to block her and sort of kind of get her away from me because it was like she couldn't turn the switch off. And I'm like, why are you my why, why are you trying to be my friend? And I guess she thought I was quote unquote one of the good ones. I, oh what? Mm. White people listening, I am not one of the good ones. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want you all to know that. I'm professional. I do what I'm. I, I do what I'm necessary to do. But you cannot run up on me and talk about other black talk about other black people to me, or about blackness, or mm-hmm. say why why is he kneeling, or why what what why don't all lives matter, or don't no no no. no no because I will look at you like you are crazy, and wherever you are. You better hope you didn't ride with me because you will be Ubering your ass back to your house. Uber, Uber. Uber pool. Mm-hmm. Party lift. Pick one. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a carpool. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all be what the fuck would be happening. I don't like that shit uh, at no, all. No, that's right. Where was uh, that, that? That story made me mad all over again. I got another one too when we get oh. to um later part in the story. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so the um, attack that's being planned, because they're planning an attack and, of course, also some cross burnings as well. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to make sure that Flip has Ron Sauer's membership card so he can go to the cross burning and get like the intel and everything like that, or at least like, put it to a stop. Uh, and of course, mm. the, this cross running gets canceled because like people feel like there's too many cops around because like they get enough intel to know where it actually was going to happen, so it doesn't happen. But we do get Ivanhoe explaining to us about the cross burning and talking about it like it's goddamn fireworks on the Fourth of July, like this is an amazing sight of seeing this wood burning up and you know like with carrots they douse those um, um, the slabs of wood with kerosene and use matches so they have enough time to get away rather than like a torch or anything like that and burn the cross. You can see it for miles because so that you can scare as many black people and Jewish people and, and, and everything like that for miles away. And just the way that that actor is, is telling the story, like a little boy talking about fireworks, 
It's, it's fucking disturbing. It's so effective. And so huh? fucking scary. And so, trying to get the, the um, membership expedited, Ron Stallworth ends up calling um, the headquarters of the KKK in New Orleans, Louisiana, and gets on the phone with David fucking Duke, played by Topher Grace, who, who bless his heart, he was terrified playing this part. <laughs> yes. And he and the bad part about it is, well, not the bad part, but he was so good. He was so good. He was so damn good. And the other part is, so I was telling Ali about this, because Ali's probably not going to see this movie. This is the, like, he would not sleep for like a week if he saw this movie, but uh, I feel like, no. I feel like I want to try to get him to see it. But I was explaining to him what it was, uh, everything, and about David Duke, and about, you know, I mean, I had to jump ahead right quick and do a slight spoiler, of course, and out of order. David Duke appears at the end of the film in person, in actual footage from Charlottesville from last year. And Harley was like, wait a minute, he's still alive? I'm like, yes. No, uh-huh. so nobody in the last 40 years has taken David Duke out, killed him, made him like, like, no, he is still alive and breathing. He might be in better health than you are. Right. And that is the part of the whole thing that, you know, when we get to that part, that makes the whole movie, even if you've enjoyed it, like you leave the theater feeling like somebody like 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 Spike punches you in the stomach on the way out on purpose. <laughs> Cause David Duke, the funny thing is he, even though he was like the, you know, the grand wizard of the clan, he changed the title to national director because he had an eye and a vision towards normalizing the clan and integrating it into quote unquote polite society so that he could run for political office, which he did. Yep. And also so that he could, you know, influence politicians more directly and openly, which he <laughs> did. <laughs> God damn, this movie. <laughs> it's like, man, he ingratiated himself in polite society. And I love how... There are white folks who actually act like this is not a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And you're like, well, that was so long ago. I'm sorry, it's what now? Listen. This is from, if this is the right time frame, it's 1979. Get up. He didn't stop. So one of these suburbs of Atlanta that I was talking about you talking about to you before we started recording about how I don't want to live out there mm-hmm. is a suburb called Woodstock, Georgia. In Woodstock, Uh-oh. Georgia, the Ku Klux Klan passes out flyers still on a regular basis <gasps> to try to uh, recruit new members among the populace of Woodstock, Georgia. Oh, my God. People wake up to uh, flyers that have a phone number and a website for more information to join the Klan on their doorstep mm-hmm. in 2018. You know, we're all post-racial and shit. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just so be aware. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so nuts. Ron Starworth and David Duke become um, phone buddies. <laughs> they start having regular ass conversations, talking about stuff and everything. And at one point, while he's talking to uh, Mr. Because uh, quote unquote Mr. Duke 
personally expedites Ross Lauerworth's uh, membership into the clan. Like, the mm-hmm. paperwork and everything. And during one of the conversations, Ross um, Lauerworth talks about how, you know, because David Duke used to have, I think it was a man he was talking about, if I recall properly, like, like the woman who raised him for his parents mm-hmm. and about how he loved her, you know, and it's like the good ones you fall in love with and they're like, Fame like like a dog, like a pet, basically. And Ron's like, yeah, I I knew a coon once. Um, his name was Buttered Biscuit. And he's like, Butter Biscuit? What kind of name is that? Why did he call him that? Because he loved his mother's butter biscuits. And mm-hmm. I played with Butter Biscuit every day. And then one day my dad came and told me I couldn't play with Butter Biscuit anymore because I was white and he was a nigger. And so I stopped playing with that nigger. And even though he's telling the story in this white man's racist character, on his mm-hmm. face, and this is John, they, clearly um, um, Denzel and Pauletta uh, were like, okay, we're going to keep the tradition going with this one. <laughs> on his face, mm-hmm. were clearly he's, his heart is breaking because it's very, even though we don't have to be told, the audience is aware, this story happened in the reverse. He was Butter mm-hmm. Biscuit, which the name obviously is sort of kind of a play on like Buckwheat and Farina, the characters from the Little Rascals, the black characters who played with the white kids. You know, they were all friends and all got along and everything, which of course wouldn't happen mm-hmm. by the time they turned about 16, 17. Um, mm-hmm. And his white friend wasn't his friend anymore once he was aware of his whiteness. So. I was Butter Biscuit to some, um, a white friend of mine. Really? Oh, boy. And we lost contact after middle school. But mm-hmm. once again, Facebook. Um, through the power of Facebook, we found each other again. It was like, oh, my best friend from back in the grade school. Same thing mm-hmm. with the Connie character. Just... Yikes. All the words... All the wrong words about things that directly affected me, the people I I knew and loved and everything. And it was a thing where I had to face them out of my life and block and everything. And that one hurt. Because it was like, you think, even though it, he always made it clear, he never, he never meant to say anything mean that would hurt me, even though he was. Mm-hmm. It's like, what does that mean about when we were kids? What did you think then? Exactly. And I remember I told my mother the story at Thanksgiving. Just like, you know, like a couple of years ago. And I was telling her about the blocking and everything about the stuff. Because like, I never knew that, you know, my friend would grow up to be, and she finished a sentence for me, a racist. And I'm like, mm. how did you know? Because my mother taught school. And this kid had a sister or a cousin. I think it was a, it might've been a cousin. And when my mother became the cousin's school teacher, they pulled the cousin out of class for no other reason than she was a black school teacher. And they didn't want this black school teacher teaching their white child. This is the 1980s, 90s we're talking about here, by the way. I'm not talking about the 60s or the 70s or the 50s or 40s. We're talking about like modern times, you know, like... So, mm. ugh, you have to excuse me a second. I'm sorry. I'm just mm. yeah. So when I no, when I when I saw that scene <sighs> in the theater, like, that that broke my heart because I know that feeling. It's like because you know hatred is not hatred is taught. 
It is not ingrained Correct. in children. Correct. You don't come Correct. to this world racist. You don't come to this world nope. sexist. You don't come to this world homophobic. You are indoctrinated, educated, and socialized into those things. You're told mm-hmm. who's proper to, you know, hang around with. You're told who's proper to date or to love and things like that. And anything that falls outside of that, you are ostracized to some degree, um, mm-hmm. extreme or otherwise, in society. Even if it's just jokes, if it could be anything from just simple jokes all the way up to violence and murder and everything right. in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it always, you know, it always gets me when people think uh, these kind of situations, especially because it's like a work of fiction, you think that it's exaggerated. It's like, it's not. It's based on someone's experience. Yes. Like, it's not lost on me that Ruby Bridges is 64 and my grandmother is in her 80s. Yes, which means that your grandmother went, um, is your grandmother from the South? Yeah, she's from Virginia. Yeah, so your grandmother probably went to um, school in a district that was segregated in her time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, so, like, for a long time, I couldn't watch the movie to help. Like, my mother couldn't oh, either. Christ. And I had asked her, I asked my mother why. She's like, Stephanie, mother was the help. Right. So. She, yeah. So it's like, it was hard. It's like, uh, she's like, I, I, I can't watch that. Yeah, I saw The Help the night before the 2012, I think it was, Oscars, because it was nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, that movie was terrible. Like, as a, like, a artistic work of film, it looked nice. The acting was well done. The writing was terrible, simply because they took civil rights in Jackson, in Jackson Mississippi in 1963-64 and made it into a figurative and literal because it was a touchstone DreamWorks picture, Disney-fied version of mm-hmm. such. It was a minor inconvenience rather than the life or death situation that it actually was. And they had Octavia Spencer, bless her heart, and, you know, she's got an Oscar now, she's made the money. They had her t- um, turn to a white woman and say, well, as she's preparing fried chicken and say, fried chicken just makes you feel good about life. I was lucky I didn't see the theater. I was in the comfort of my own home because I screamed at the TV and threw something. I was like, the fuck? It's like, you what? Like, I know she's shit in the pie. And you know, that's funny and everything is good. Come up and everything. But A, that fried chicken shit. B, white women saw, redheaded white women saw as racism for a bunch of black people couldn't do for themselves, apparently. And C, the movie ends on the saddest note possible because, you know, it's like, you know, Abilene comes to realize that, you know, this little girl she's come to love as the, has, her, has her caretaker, she's going she to grow up to be a white woman. Just like the white woman mm-hmm. who tortures her every day as her boss. And she sent away because of the whole thing about, you know, the book, the, the help book and everything like that. And she just, yeah. you know, the last shot is her walking away down the road. Like, and Viola Davis came out this week and she's like, yeah, I kind of regret doing the help because even though I love the people who I did it with. The final edit of the film, we didn't really get to see Abilene's story the way I thought we would. It was about the white Exactly. Because you did it from their perspective. Right. And not the perspective of the quote-unquote help. Right. And the real Abilene, whose name is actually Abilene. Like, why not make up a fictional name? 
<laughs> came out and um, I don't know if she sued, but she certainly complained in public about the author of the original book and about Tay Taylor because they're the two of them were like childhood friends. Like they knew her what? in real life. Yes, that's how he got to do the movie because I think it was his, it was his, it might have been his second movie he ever did. It was very early in his directing career. But he got it because wow. he knew the woman who wrote the book. And the woman who wrote the book was the little girl that Abel was taken care of in real life. Like, it's a work of oh fiction, but it's a work God. of fiction based upon actual events. And the way that she wishes that... it had happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sure. I don't like the help. I'm sorry. <laughs> It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but yeah. You know, it's not like it's amazing when you like look at movies. The fact that she's t- just talking about the help now. Like, how old is this movie that she's finally saying this now? I'm like, I kind of wish I hadn't done that movie. Yeah. <laughs> and you think about past movies like that and Dangerous Minds mm-hmm. and, and how problematic the they are. The blind side. Oh my God. Like, they're so problematic. And it doesn't make you dislike the folks that star in the movie, but you just kind of... Or radio. Radio is my one where I like, if y'all show this movie one more time, <laughs> I'm going to find and punch him in the face. <laughs> Hello, it's here, radio. What the hell is going on here? What? Get, mm. What? <laughs> Ugh. That's so much. Trash. 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 Um, yeah, so as all of this is going on, though, um, Ron Starworth is actually dating Patrice. Like, like you know, even though mm-hmm. his um, Zimmerman tells him you shouldn't be doing that, you know, he starts dating. And there's a scene where they go dancing after, you know, after, after the whole thing where she t- tells him about the um, when she got pulled over and everything. Like, they go out, like, just, like, sort of kind of to ease her nerves. And he's been lying to her the whole time about what he does. You know, it's his cover story mm-hmm. he uses while he's, he works in construction. Like, he doesn't tell her that, she, that he's a cop, even though he's still, he, even though as she's talking about cops, you know, and calls them pigs, he's like, well, you know, not all cops are bad. How do you know all <laughs> cops are bad? Are you a pig? No, of course not. I'm in construction. You know, it's the whole Clark Kent <laughs> Superman thing, I guess, is what he's trying to do in his of mind. Of course not. <laughs> that would be absurd. But there's a very <laughs> awesome, very spikely scene where they go to the club and they dance to um, It's Too Late to Turn Back Now by uh, Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose, which is one of my favorite, mm. like, 70s songs. And everybody sings along. They do the oh. solo train line. I was like, God damn it, Spike, why you do this to me? <laughs> Goodness. I was starting there at the theater. See, look, it's too late to turn back now. I believe, I believe, I believe I'm falling in love. I love that damn song. <laughs> um, that and there's a scene where um him and Patrice are walking and they're playing, like in the trailer, they're playing uh, the Temptations Ball of Confusion. It's mm-hmm. one of my favorite songs, too. Ball of Confusion. And they're talking about black, just random black stuff, like pop culture. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, they're talking about the movies that have been out. They're talking about Coffee and Cleopatra Jones and Shaq the Superfly. And because Spike Lee is Spike Lee, every time they mention one of them, they flash the, um, the poster up on the screen. Mm-hmm. Which is one thing I love about Spike Lee's movies. He, he always does that. He did it with Bamboozled, like where 
they're talking about TV shows like a Good Times things. They will actually put a clip of the show right there in the edit at that point. You know, mm. like so that you know it piques the interest and makes you actually want to go look it up later if you hadn't already. In the case of these, like I already knew about a bunch of these anyways. You know, like I'm pretty sure I have every movie that they mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, like, it's just like, you see them get to know each other as people, you know, and even though they have disagreeing views on the role of the police in, like, helping um, um, Black people's liberation, Ron Starworth believes that you can work from the inside and change the police system so that it works better for Black people. Patrice is like, you can't change the system because it's, it's inherently corrupt from its core. Therefore, you have to try to take it down. They connect on like everything else, basically, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Which is like these very nice scenes that break us away from the the heavy racism. And it, I mean, even though like it should be pointed out that um Patrice is not a real person. Unfortunately. Oh, okay. She's not a real person. She is a fictitious character created because we 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 needed her there as a representative of the Black Power movement of the time, and also to get us away from clan, 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 you know. <laughs> uh, and also in real life, um, Ron Sauer's partner, the one who actually went to the clan meetings, he he never gave his actual name, and he was not Jewish in real life. He never gave his name because oh. he was the one the clan actually saw. So if they ever found out who he was, you know, he'd be in danger. Mm. So, like, but we what was known is that he wasn't Jewish. They made him Jewish for the purpose of the movie, so that that character, the Adam Driver plays, could have the arc of realizing that he is as much in danger from from the Klan as black people are, even though he doesn't realize it. And it's sort of a thing where this quote unquote, for, I mean, he's essentially white for the purposes of this story. This white man right. learns that. His apathy is as much a detriment and a danger as the active racism of the Klan is. Mm-hmm. And Spike, bless his heart, has learned to get that across to the audience without kicking us in the face with it. It is firmly but smoothly applied <laughs> to the narrative. It's and- interesting that you say that, that like he made the character Jewish, even though he wasn't Jewish, um, just so there could be some sort of relation. Right. And I think that's the sad part. It's like, you got to have some sort of relation. Like, you know, it's like if you have a white person who is a little bit quote-unquote woke, then he must be Jewish, or he must be LGBTQ, or he must be like something else, but he can't just be white Protestant because it's like, that's not that's not heard of. Ooh, that's a good point. And that's kind of scary. It's like, why does he... Because, I mean, I... That's the thing. Because I didn't delve too much into the story, I didn't know that he made him Jewish. I'm like, the bad part about it is, why would you have to do that? So that he would, quote unquote, understand. I'm like, why do you need to be a part of a, an, another oppressed group to understand an oppressed group? That is a good question. That I, I don't know if I would call that a flaw in the movie itself, but I do see what I don't you're think saying. It's a flaw. I do see what yeah. you're saying. Like 
if the character had been, just been as a regular white Protestant person and had come to learn that way without having this, you know, um, added thing that the clan could harp upon, what how would the mm-hmm. narrative be different? But yeah. But speaking of that, um, Felix is still skeptical about this guy because Walter likes him too much. And Walter is planning to step down from the clan. Not no, not from he's still stepping from this chapter. That's the part that I that I realized when I thought about the movie back. And he wants to, he has higher aspirations in, the, in this organization. He wants to be at the national level of David Duke. So mm. he nominates Ron Starworth to be the new president of the local chapter of the clan. Even though Felix and Ivanhoe were like, this guy just got here. You know, basically it's like, why not one of us? So Felix goes digging into Ron Starworth's business and pops up at Ron Starworth, the real Ron Starworth's house, um, his apartment, and sees that there is a, um, a Negro and a Negress there and recognizes that it's Patrice who they've been targeting this whole time. Even though um, Zimmerman tries to play it off, and he's like, oh, no, that's not my, that's my place. My place is over on 92nd Street. You know, yeah, come over sometime. I'll, I'll show you around. Um, but yeah. And there's a, other slip-ups slip ups too. Like they mentioned, um, Ron Starwell mentions that he has, you know, his alibis, he has like a sick father, which is why he can't be um, clan president. His sick father is in El Paso. And Zimmerman actually says Dallas. And they're like, Dallas? Like you said it was El Paso. Which one is it? Can you change the make of your mind? And so, although Dallas is where the layover is to go on the way to El Paso. That's how he tries to clear it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they're basically poking holes in the story. And in real life, the clan never figured that shit out. The movie makes them smarter than they were in real life. In real life, they never figured it out until Ron Starworth started giving interviews in 2006. They never figured it out. Huh. There's one particularly, like, horrifying scene where Zimmerman goes along with the clan. They're out like at target practice on the shooting range. Like firing weapons is basically like, you know, like, like, and he's like, you're a really good shot. Where'd you learn to shoot? And he lies about being in the army, of course, because, you know, he's a cop. That's where he learned to shoot. Um, mm-hmm. And after everybody leaves, Ron comes out to sort of kind of investigate the scene and we were never shown. We, I just thought they were shooting like, you know, like at the mountain or whatever, at trees, wherever else white people shoot at when they're out in the woods. But they had set up five targets of the silhouettes of clearly exaggerated black men with gigantic afros. And that's what they were shooting at. And feel, and, uh. and um and um flip. Because he's a, he's a good shoot, shot, was getting them right dead in the head every time. Uh. And when I, because when that camera, pan, when that camera started panning slow, I was like, oh no, they got black targets. And then they showed it, and it's like they had five of them. And it's just like, like your heart sinks because it's like, this is the clan. This is really the whole thing. This is what it's about. This is what mm-hmm. they're preparing for. Yeah. And so during this whole thing, uh, David Duke 
tells Ron Stover that he's coming to Colorado Springs um, to visit for the initiation ceremony that he'll be part of. He hopes to meet him. And of course, Flip's going to be there instead. But the police chief, who's an entire ass apparently, assigns Ron Stallworth to be um, David Duke's um, security detail while he's in Colorado. Why? Why would you do this? Why? Uh. What? what why? <laughs> I, it doesn't make any sense. I'm like, you guys know what he's about. Of all people, you don't think, no? That, no, nobody else, huh? Couldn't ask the volunteer. Couldn't ask a white person, just a random white person, anybody. <laughs> and I, I had to look it up. This actually happened. This, this actually did happen. They assigned him to be the security detail. And so, of course, when he gets there, it's like, you know, everybody's glaring at him because he's the one lone black guy in this group of fucking clan members. You know, and he, and he comes, shows up just at, at just like he like he stepped off the set of um, Shaft himself with, you know, sunglasses and <laughs> a jean jacket and everything. <laughs> just a complete mess and Felix and Ivanhoe are sort of kind of lingering over him like you stay right here and don't move and all this kind of stuff um, and there's like a really really hilarious moment where he he tells David Duke he's like nobody ever believed me so I gotta get a, get a picture can I take a picture with you and so he takes a picture with David Duke and has Flip, who's pretending to be him, take the picture. And when the pit, when the when the shutter goes off, he grabs David Duke and the other and the other clan member. And when he's like, "What'd you do, boy? What'd you do?" And he's like, "Touch me if you want to. I'll be arrested for assaulting an officer. Try me." <laughs> it was so funny. I was like, "Uh, y'all." Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they while all this while all this is going on, they um the other clan members are actually planning to blow up a civil rights rally that's been going on. And Ross Owens was trying to warn Patrice to be careful because she's being targeted. And he eventually reveals to her that he is indeed an undercover cop. And so like she's like, you know. I can't be around you. You know, you lied to me, A and B, you're a cop. You know, I don't trust you. Leave me alone. And so, but she's still in danger because the clan is after her. And fucking Connie, useless ass Connie, wants to be useful. And so they have her be the one. She's going to deliver a bomb, a fucking bomb, like a C4 bomb to this civil rights rally to blow up all these people. <sighs> like, and they're trying to show her how to use a detonator and shit. And she's so happy. You know, there was this earlier scene where she was in a bed with Felix, like, are we really going to kill all these people? You know, we talked about it a lot, but I never thought it actually happened. It's so exciting. This fucking psychopath. She, she is a mess and a half. And the <laughs> fact that he asked her to do it, hmm. I'm sorry. The first thing I thought was, he really don't give a shit about you, does he? Not at all. I was like, you don't, she could get caught. She could get hurt. 
But no, let her do it. I'm like all those other men that are disposable, quote unquote. This is when you know that women involved in the clan, they really don't care about y'all. At fucking they'll sacrifice all. you before everybody Body else. Counts. It's like, uh, you're stupid and you want to fit in so bad. Yeah, mm. Indeed. How dreadful. And so she goes over to this um this rally, and this sequence here is the like the core of the movie. Because with the clan, they're having their initiation process, which is it's not unlike a baptism. It's super fucking no. religious. They're splashing water on you. There's all this, they're they're praying to God for white power and white leaders and white, 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 white. And it's just disturbing because, like, if you changed around a couple of the words and everything, it it would be like like a benediction, basically. The hatred of the clan, and it's always important to stress people, it is religious, it's fueled by religion, it's fueled by their version of Christianity. If you go to, like, and I actually went to one of these places where one of these right-wing churches, they aren't that far off from a clan rally. They really aren't. They might try to fool themselves and think that they're not because they let Negroes through their front doors, but they aren't. And he flips sits there and he becomes a member of the fucking clan. He has to denounce Jewish people and, you know, and black people. And now that actually means something to him for once. And meanwhile, with all that's going on, the Black City Unit is hosting this event where they have um, Harry Belafonte is playing a man named Jerome Turner, who, when he was, I need to actually find the name of the man because um, he's telling the story. He's telling it's real because he's telling mm. he's telling the story about his best friend, who was um, a man named I want to say it was James Washington. I'll look it up, make sure that's correct. Basically, he was accused of raping and killing a white woman in their hometown in 1916. And they came and got him and kidnapped him and basically, and drug him like through like the streets, like, and like, even when like the chains broke because he was too big for the chains basically and broke free because he was mentally challenged and didn't understand what was going on. They strung him up to hang him. He was holding onto the noose. So they cut off his fingers in public they cut off his testicles. And, like, they hired a photographer to come and take pictures that they later sold as postcards as they hung and lynched this man in view of everybody behind the lie. And at the conclusion of that, you know, like, they just opposed because, like, the clan meet, the clan initiation, you know, they saw, say, white power. And the black people there is, like, that's why we say black power. It's literally Spike Lee telling white people this is the difference between white power and black power. Why is it okay to say black power? It's not okay to say white power. And don't ever get it fucking twisted ever again. Don't ever get it twisted. Right. Let me make sure I can find that correct name. And like the way that is done by the like the is just position. It's not comp- it's not like a comparison of black power and white power. It's a contrast on purpose. Because you have this old man sitting here talking about his friend that, you know, he loved from when he was a kid. 
because he he says he hid. It's the only reason he wasn't lynched as well. He hid while they attacked his friend. And just the way he tells the story, and like Harry Belafonte, of course, you know, who those who don't know the audience listening, you know, he was like in addition to being like a famous film. TV and, you know, actor and musician, he was a financier and an important figure in the civil rights movement. So having him in this movie playing this part was a significant and important honor. And the man's name was Jesse Washington. What a boy's name. He was like 17 or Mm. 18. Wow. Oh, my God. Like... And finding out that it was all, I mean, it sounded too terrible to make up. And of course it was. Because I mean, the thing is, is like, they cut this man's, like, they cut, they, they cut off his testicles in public in front of everybody, men, women, and children. It's like what they did to Emmett Till. They cut Emmett Till's tongue out of his mouth. Yeah. Because the rumor is that he was like a white woman. Because they didn't see black people as people. It's easy to think, I'm like, it's easy to do those kind of atrocities to children and young folks if you don't think of them as human. Right. Less than your dogs, your Mm -hmm. cats, any animal that you own. Yeah, and Trayvon Martin. Because speaking of Zimmerman, Mm -hmm. George Zimmerman is still alive and well and running around wearing Confederate flag shirts and signing autographs. Signing bags of Skittles. One I'm the, like, you monster. One of these fucking days, he's going to realize he's not fucking white. Maybe he shouldn't uh, become the dad. It should be a, to be a not being a piece of shit. But the Trayvon Martin story particularly scares me because I used to, I live not far from where Trayvon Martin lived. Not at the same time. Really? But I know the street corner and the like, mm. like the, um, and the 7 Eleven, wherever it was, where he got his good. I've been to those places before. I know exactly where that shit is. Mm. It's right next, like it's not like it's right next to the like, the um, Sanford, Florida mall, like right down the street from it. Mm. Like, and like when I was when I was living there, it was like I was kind of you know just really naive about a whole bunch of shit. I would just walk around randomly places and shit. That could have easily have been me. Wow, and that I mean that that stuff terrifies me when I think about it, and when wow. people don't seem to understand. That, you know, not only do you kill this boy who had just turned 17, you drug test him. You try to find everything that he did wrong in his life. And you turn the man who murdered him into a hero. And the man who who murdered him clearly does all these, you know, he clearly goes off the reservation Afterwards, now he it's not like George Zimmerman disappeared and never was heard from him again. You know, he's done fuck shit ever since and said fuck shit and become a hero to mm-hmm. racist ever since. Completely undermining so it, it's, any it's, and everything he said about it being self-defense and stand your ground and shit. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. No, no, no. It's it's fine. I it's always interesting when people talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. And they bring up, you know, police brutality. I'm like, that wasn't what started this. This was about a little black boy being killed by a white, na- white, uh, white appearing neighbor. Right. And nothing happening to him. Right. Like this didn't start about this didn't start about police. 
because George Zimmerman is not any police kind of authority figure. He he's not a cop. But I was like, it's because of police. I'm like, that's not what started it. It's like, why didn't his life matter? Right. This man lied. He's like, well, uh, you are following him. The police said, do not follow him. Leave him alone. I'm like, this was this didn't start because of the police. It started because in the grand scheme of things, when it comes down to a white appearing person and a black person, you will take the side of the white appearing person because, you know, inherently you we are taught that, right, you're you're more trusting and also he must have been up to no good anyway because that's how black people are. Because that's the narrative that's been pushed since forever. Since forever. Since birth of a nation. Since birth. I did a whole, that fuck shit movie. I was like, oh my God. So we are actually there because the, um, in a particularly horrifying scene, um, Ron Sauber actually watches through the window. He gets like, he pays off one of the, um, Black cooks who is forced to work the event. He was like, if I knew this was a clan meeting, I wouldn't have took this job. Shit. <laughs> and he watches through the like like the upper like window into the room where they are screening all three hours and so of Birth of a Nation. Um, which of course is the is a movie that makes the Ku Klux Klan out to be the heroes. And they're cheering on every bit. And Spike Lee is Spike Lee made sure it was important that you watched enough of the movie to understand what was going on. But I feel like, even though it's a, it's a hard watch, if you can stomach it, I think everybody should watch the movie at least once. Like I saw it once, and that was enough for me. Because you will never forget it. First of all, and second of all, it's important to understand that Birth of a Nation was the movie that defined movies. The movie was so popular. It was like a Star Wars movie. It was like a Marvel movie. It was that popular back in 1915, 1916. It was a gigantic hit. The first film screen at the White House that, um, like, you know, um, Harry Belafonte says in the movie and President Woodrow Wilson saying that watching it was like history writ with lightning. That it was an incredible thing to see. And because, like, you know, all... Almost all the black people are played by white people in blackface. They're played like, you know, savages. You know, this black man chases a white woman off the cliff. She kills herself rather than have her or rather be raped by this black man, this evil black man. And so the good white citizens all start with the Ku Klux Klan to come and rally and kill all the black people. There's a scene that it was so ludicrous, I actually laughed when I saw it, where this one white man goes Popeye the Sailor on, like, a dozen black men in this bank or whatever and knocks them all out. Eventually, they draw all the black people out. They kill them all. And they sh- they show... D.W. Griffith, the director, shows the black people in hell burning as Satan is superimposed over them and then shows the clan running off to the sunset and superimposes Jesus Christ over them. And that is the end of the picture. That's how the movie ends. I will never forget that. I saw that. I was like 20 years old. I will never, as long as I live and breathe, I don't ever want to see it again, but I will never forget seeing that. Because it's literally what Ice Cube say. Here's what, they, here's what they think about you. Here's what they think about you in, 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 living, in living, moving um, motion pictures. Mm. 
And so after all of that is over, they, this is actually just the part where they take the picture because this is also where um, the clan member who put together the bomb recognizes Flip as the police officer who arrested him five years ago and sent him to jail. And they realize that, you know, that Ron Starworth is the black guy. They, they figure the whole thing out, basically. And they figure out how are they going to tell David Duke. Um, and when they try to do it, it's just, it doesn't go over very well. Um, because uh, Connie has failed to put the bomb, <laughs> to get the bomb to the rally. Because, like, you know, she, they, um, Ron Summerf calls the police, um, but calls back and gets, like, the police swarming the area. So she's too scared to do, make, to actually, um, set the bomb off by the, by the house. And so they tell her to go, uh, for plan B, which is to go to Patrice's house and put the bomb mm. in her mailbox and, well, wait for her to get back, put the bomb in her mailbox, and then, you know, set the bomb off and kill her. And so this simple, this simple woman does this, does it, but the bomb doesn't fit in the mailbox. And so she's trying to shovel her way out of there. And when Ron realizes that she's gone and you know, he, he's gotten in the car and made a beeline for Patrice's house, and he jumps out the car and runs to try to, to tackle and arrest Connie. And... You know, we have a visual of a black man trying to wrestle a white woman to the ground. Police officers immediately show up. Like, like they 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 might have materialized out of thin air. I think they did. Yeah, <laughs> and arrest him and try to arrest him, even though he tells them I'm an undercover cop. I have my badge in my pocket, and she's like, "This this 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 black man tried to rape me. He attacked me. He was going to rape me." Meanwhile. She has left the fucking bomb by side of Patrice's um, Volkswagen bug before she went into the house. And um, her husband, Felix, and his and um, Ivanhoe and the, um, the bomb dude are on the way to the house to, set the, to detonate the bomb. And mm-hmm. because the, he, she left it by the side of the car and not in the mailbox and didn't tell anybody where she had left it, when they set the bomb off, they end up blowing themselves up, you know, but, like, Patrice had just come out of the house and everything, and, like, so everybody sees the whole thing go off. And this scene, the everything, the music, the, like, the way it's, it's acted, the direction, every, this scene is perfect. This is, like, perfect filmmaking here because I was about to have a heart attack when this was all going on. So I didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And eventually... I was just like, oh... Yep, and eventually Flip um shows up in his in his um and tells the white police officers like that guy's a police officer. Like, He's a cop. And I was <laughs> sitting there on the edge of my seat. I was about to scream. I'm like, he literally kept saying it. Yeah, but it was like we didn't know. He fucking told you. What you mean you didn't know? Like I mean, and he told oh, you his badge was. You could you could have. Like, I am preaching for my. You yeah. could have easily went in his pocket and yes. got it. Yes. If you didn't believe him and didn't want him going to his pocket, you thought it was a gun, you, you're arresting him, patting him down. You can go and get the badge oh, out of no. the pocket. It's like, what? Ugh. The 
only thing that sucked about this scene was that they didn't blow up Connie, too. Yeah, she lived. I was like, ugh. Why aren't you blown up? But yeah, they go to arrest her. And it's who like I was, like the whole that whole like sequence, I was literally in the theater, like, like, cause like the thing is, is that the clan, like, I mean, my parents have told me stories about the clan attacking like the neighborhood and stuff when like like you know, years ago and stuff, when they lived and everything. Like, and I mean, like I like I said before about the flyers and stuff, it's for real. Even though this is a fictitious movie. To some degree. Like the whole the whole clan plot that we have here is fictitious. Like in real life, and well, one part I forgot to mention, when they were at the shooting range, there's these two guys, like then they called them like Ben and Jerry or some shit like that, which were fake names mm-hmm. that were hanging out. Turns out that those two guys, the FBI came and talked to Ron Slotwerber said, those two guys are, they work at NORAD. They are in charge of nukes. And they are in the Ku Klux mm-hmm. Klan. And do you did you know? I looked it up. So this part is for real. And they did not fire these two men. They just reassigned them within the federal government. What? They still had jobs, paying jobs within the federal government, even though they were found to be members of the Ku Klux Klan. Ah, the worst. The absolute worst. And the FBI agents tell him, like, you know, we need this intelligence because, you know, we the KKK has infiltrated the government. It could not be very long before they put one of their own into the presidency. And Ron Stowarf is like, oh, they will never, people will never do that. Like, we would never let the president like David Duke. He might as well have turned to the camera and waited for, like, the, like, the nervous laughter. Because that's exactly what happened in the theater when I saw it. Like, everybody's like, mm, yeah, yeah, wow. Whew. Oh, my God. But, yeah. Um, but um, after they um, arrest Connie and, you know, have blown up all the, um, the clan members, uh, Patrice and Ron set up a sting operation for Officer Landers to be arrested by basically having him confess to having sexually assaulted her and brag about it. And they happen to get it all on tape and, you know, and, and get him arrested. And everybody celebrating, you know, it's like, woo, look at us now, you know, we woke white folks now, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the police was like, that's all fine and good. We're shutting this shit down. <laughs> we can't afford it anymore. And I don't know if it's like better if they couldn't afford it anymore or they didn't want to afford it anymore. You know, it's probably one of those things. I think it's a didn't want to. Yeah. And so as he's packing up, um, Ron's phone starts to ring because the whole time ever his phone rung, it was usually David Duke calling to, you know, sit there and twirl the phone on his on his finger like a 16-year-old girl and just talk shit. And so he doesn't answer. He just walks out, you know, with his with his box and everything. But he something nags him, so he goes back in there and he answers the phone and talks to David Duke. Because before in an earlier scene, David Duke, uh, he actually was like, you know, Mr. Duke, how do you know that I'm not some Negro calling up, you know, pretending to be a white man, you know, like just to mess with you? And he's like, oh no, you would never be that. I know a Negro when I hear one. And probably he didn't say Negro, but I'm tired of saying that word today. Um, and he's, he's like, 
because they speak a certain way. For example, the way that they say are, are. You know, we say, are you going to the store? A Negro says, are you going to the store? <laughs> and so when, um, and every time that he has David Duke on the phone, he always calls over, um, Ron calls over his coworkers. They are listening, Kiki, as it's very clear that, you know, you know, David Duke is not the sharpest tool in the shed because he's being catfished the entire time. And so this final time, he's like, um, he, like, you know, like, um, you know, he's like, because um, he, he's talking about how he, like, lost, like, three good men and everything. I mean, yeah, he, and Ron's like, yeah, and kind of looking at serious time. You know, I, I don't... I wonder how they found out, you know, everything was going on in the police, you know. How do you know it wasn't me that did it? Ara, you sure it wasn't me? Ara, you? <laughs> and, you know, he's like, you know, like, ha-ha, you know, um, this whole time you've been talking to Ron Slotworth is me. I'm black. And, um, I'm black, you um, you stupid pencil dick, um, inchworm, peckerwood, son of a, you know, like, like, like motherfucker and hangs up. In real life, that didn't happen, unfortunately. You know, it's an awesome moment for the movie. Um, David Duke never found out until Ron Starworth just got given interviews in the 2000s. Oh, wow. He thought of the whole time it was a good white man <laughs> who had joined the clan. <laughs> and the real wow. Ron Starworth still has his, um, his membership card for the Ku Klux Klan. He still has it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so after that, Ron tries to go talk to Patrice. Patrice is like, no, we're breaking up. I can't, I'm sorry. I can't date you. You're a police officer. I just, you're the enemy. I can't do it. And I mean, um, I mean, that's her right. Cause I mean, that's, I mean, even though I feel like there's, both of them have good points. And I think the important thing for mm-hmm. black people in this thing, why they accept this way, they both have good points. It's not like one is right and one is wrong. Or one is wrong and one is right. It's rather is that they are they both have good points about how we correct things. The thing is this: we need a mm-hmm. we need police officers because everybody talks about you know dismantling the police. What they really mean is they want to rebuild the police force, which is an idea, but just takes capital because you can't basically you can't have an all volunteer police force in America. There's too much work. You need to pay somebody. But if you're paying somebody to be the police, it's I feel like it's important that they are protecting everybody, that they are fair to everybody. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, that is not the case. And that that additional oversight needs to be there so that everybody feels safe and that we can have a better society. You know, and how we get there is from inside internal and external pressure, I feel, simultaneously and in different ways. And while they're having this discussion, it turns out that they hear something going on outside. And so they immediately go to the door. We get, you know, the Spike Lee dolly shot. And they see that because, like, the whole time that the operation was going on, when they were infiltrating the Klan, there were no crossburns because they kept, you know, foiling them up and having the cops called. But now that there's no more operation for the infiltration, they have burnt across right where Patrice can see it from her window. Or I don't know if they're mm. I don't know if they're at Ron's apartment or Patrice. Basically, they can see from the window, you know, like on top of like one of the mountains, like out there. And at this cross burning, we clearly see that Connie has been bailed out of jail, and she is there 
in her husband's clan robes. Uh. Despite all the murder, like like her husband dying and her being looking at going to jail for a long time for a conspiracy to blow up people and commit murder and being part of the clan, her racism comes first. That 50, 53% mentality comes first. And that is the last uh-huh. scene of the actual narrative part of the film because from there it immediately cuts to because like they're actually chanting blood so it immediately cuts to Charlottesville, 2017, and we see footage of that of uh-huh. that unite the right rally. We see them run over the run over people and you know they kill and murder that white woman. Um, what what was her name? Uh, Heather Hayer. And it's a memorial to her at the end of the movie. And then the last scene of the film is a graphic of the United States flag upside down that turns to black and white. The upside down American flag basically means the nation is in distress. And concluding this movie with that footage was important and it was a gut punch because it's, it's literally like, and I was debating this on Sunday with um, everybody else. The movie concludes its story, but the story of the Klan being antagonist and attacking Black people and racists in general and that sort of kind of organized um, hatred continues to this very day. And as a matter of fact, we open with, Ad- with Alec Baldwin doing the racist character. We end with the character he plays every day, Donald Trump, telling us that there are good people on both sides of the Unite the Right um, issue, but I mean, it's regular folks versus fucking racists. So yep. show me a good racist, and I will show you an invisible person. They do not exist. And this man is the fucking president. He has the nuclear codes. I don't know. Sometimes I, I wake up and I'm like, "Oh Lord, did we make it?" <laughs> Just. Uh. But yeah, I mean, the movie ended, and because like you know, people have been you know laughing and stuff throughout the whole thing. When the movie ended, it was you could hear a pin drop because everybody's yes, heart really was could. basically in their stomachs by that point. Because even though I think uh, a, lot, a lot of people, I think we had all seen clips and pictures of Charlottesville, seeing it, seeing so much of the footage, and seeing it from multiple angles, it makes it even more real. And it hits you that much harder. And so, yeah, so that that's that's Black Klansman. Is there anything that I missed at all or anything else that you feel like we want we should add? I don't think. Um, no, because you talked about the story that Harry Belafonte told. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about the Butter Biscuit thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, did we talk about the sting for the cop? I mean, we did. Yeah. You know what was really interesting? I thought he would have been involved with the Klan. But then I think it was good that he wasn't a part of it because I think um, we society has this hard rule when it comes to racists. Yeah. That, oh, okay. Only racists are in the Klan. No, you could be racist and not in the Klan. Oh, absolutely, very much so. Like racism is not like a black or white; it's a gradient, like most things. Yeah. So I was kind of glad that he wasn't in it. Even I was surprised, but I was like, 
yeah, show the fact that there are a lot of people who, a lot of white people who are very racist and they don't have a card for the Klan. Right. Very much so. Yeah. But yeah, so, I mean, this movie, this movie's going to be around for quite some time. Like, mm-hmm. most of Spike's classics have been. I think Bamboozled is one that it took everything that happened in Bamboozled actually coming to real life with reality television um, for people to appreciate it better. Uh, I think this one, though, will be more immediately appreciated. Um, and I think part of that might have been, like, Jordan Peele and Jason Bloom were producers on it. And, you know, of course, Jordan Peele produced, wrote, and directed with Jason Bloom, um, Get Out. And so maybe some of that, that oversight net, you know, like, let's try a little bit of this, Spike, might have come through and putting this one over in a different way than Spike Lee on his own might have. Well, I mean, it wasn't his project anyway, though. He signed on to direct it. And he definitely put his mm-hmm. stamp on it, but it already existed as a project before he came to it. But I mean, like, I mean, mm-hmm. they everybody involved put their foot into it. It was it's a really, really good and important movie. And hopefully they don't pull some, it may be uncomfortable shit when the like Oscars <laughs> and Golden Globe voting and stuff starts. Cause if y'all want to hear me rant, let that shit happen. <laughs> <laughs> let it happen. Shit. But yeah, th- Stephanie, thank you so much for joining uh, me today on this um, Tuesday night. Where can people find you and the Mocha Minutes podcast online? So you can find the Mocha Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher Radio, I. Heart Rate, Heart Radio, Spotify, TuneIn, and Castbox. Awesome! Gosh, I hope that's everything. <laughs> <laughs> and what about on social media? You can find me on social media at Mocha Minutes on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm there at all three places. All right, awesome. As for me, you can find me, of course. I'm at Be Touch on Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can find the show you say some nice podcast on all social media under the handle at SSM podcast of course you can find it on Apple podcast teacher um, Google Play and where realms podcast can be found and you can also go to SSMpodcast.com to find it and instructions for subscribing to the show on any of those platforms thanks so much for listening everybody this has been the states with the nice podcast I'm Brandon And my special guest, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, and I'm Stephanie. Sorry. It's okay, and we'll see you guys next time.